Welcome to Clement Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of Europe's Clement Tech Revolution, brought to you by Clementum Capital. I'm Johan Berno, a general partner at Clementum, and I'll be your host. In each episode, I'll have one of Europe's top founders and investors, and we will try to understand how they think about climate, what has led to their success, and what are the best insights they can share with you to accelerate your climate journey. There will be a lot of terrific guests on this show, and we won't shy away from spikes, secrets, and contrarian views. To make sure you don't miss out on any episode and access all the insights, you can subscribe at climateinsiders.co. Our guest today is Alexander Langruth, the co-founder and managing partner at Übermorgen Ventures, the early-stage Zurich-based venture firm with early investments in climate innovators like Sunvigo, Carboculture and delicious data. I have a lot of respect for Alex and Übermorgen for the rolling climate ventures in Europe. Alex has always showed a high level of transparency and collaboration with Clementum. So in this episode, I will try to take you behind the closed doors and have one of the most epic conversations to give you maximum insights. We will discuss Übermorgen's evergreen fund model and why it actually helps to stand up first-time funds. We will hear Alex share how difficult it was to raise a first-time fund, and Alex and I will reap on what most people get wrong about being a fund manager. Let's go. Alex, it's great to have you on the show. Could you briefly describe Übermorgen as a starter for those that don't know you? So fund size, geography, strategy, just a brief description. Sure. So first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Um, really happy to be part of it. Um, Übermorgen Ventures is an early stage venture capital firm that invests in climate tech startups. So we do anything um, from um, pre-seed to seed, follow on the series A rounds and uh, every um, business model that has the potential to realize significant financial returns, but also either mitigate carbon dioxide emissions or draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is in our uh, focus area. So um, anything from transportation, energy, industrial resource efficiency, carbon drawdown, carbon capture. That's exciting for us. Great. You're based in Switzerland. How many are you? What's the team size, roughly? Mm -hmm. We have four, uh, four founding partners. We're based in Zurich. And uh, yeah, we have our first hire now. Um, we're growing. We're in the fundraise process. Um, nice. So still a startup ourselves. We're going to talk a lot about this. Actually, this is a great cue for me. Almost all funds, as you know, in the US, uh, globally or in Europe, is are, are 10 plus two, right? This is a traditional, it's mm -hmm. been the case for 15, 50 years, uh, 10 years plus two bonus years to extend so that there is maximum you know, uh, profit on the exit. But another model is emerging, evergreen. Sequoia started this trend in 2021 with a bank and Uber Morgan, has picked up the baton. You've uh, adopted this same format. Could you tell us why and what are the best one or two reasons to choose the evergreen model? Actually, we started doing it in 2019. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we go, yeah. Um, what are the two reasons to start an evergreen fund? For us, um, it really was uh, speed of going to market. Um, it's much, we could close much quicker, much more flexible, much less dependence on big LPs. Um, and the second is uh, probably the flexibility of how we can invest. So we can stay involved for as long as we want. We can choose the way we invest either through equity. Now we're doing our first investment in tokens. 
And it's much more entrepreneurial in a way, much more flexible and adaptable to how the market is evolving. Okay. And what are maybe the one or two downsides, right? Reasons not to choose the evergreen model. Yeah, nobody knows it. <laughs> That's certainly one, right? It's new. Um, so especially when you talk to very well-established um, institutional investors, they're like, what is this? Um, I don't know how to assess it. Um, usually yeah. you see a 10 plus two fund model. Um, so it's harder to invest with those big institutions, uh, to, to acquire those big institutional investors for fundraising. And another one, since we're based here in Switzerland, um, taxes is another reason. Okay. Um, um, for most nationals, it doesn't matter, but Swiss people are a bit spoiled when it comes to, you know, um, uh, capital gains or taxes and capital right. gains. Um, there's no capital gains in Switzerland. Exactly. There's no tax on it. So basically you have to make the case that still by paying, because we pay dividends, dividend, dividends are taxed here um, mm -hmm. in Switzerland. We have to make the case that it's still worthwhile to invest um, in an evergreen structure like ours. Now, just uh, double clicking on what you just said, how difficult was it to sell initially to LPs that tend to be more conventional? They like to invest in known vehicles. So mm -hmm. you're slightly deviating from the 10 plus two. How difficult was that? I mean, um, we chose the strategy, um, the evergreen strategy, because actually we started with the 10 plus two model end of 2019 and then COVID um, hit Europe. Um, so most of those institutional investors became much more risk averse, didn't know what's going on in the market. Uh, so let's just wait. And we switched to the evergreen because it allowed us to just get going, to close those private individuals, family offices, entrepreneurs who wanted to invest regardless. Um, and that's why we kind of made this, the, the shift because we already had people committed to the mission. Um, so we kind of shifted away from let's go for those big tickets, the, those big institutionals and just get going, close a smaller fund at first, um, prove our track record, build traction, and then close a second uh, fund uh, after that, right? So that was kind of our strategy. So how difficult was it? I mean, a first-time fund is always difficult, I guess. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> okay, we're going to talk about that. Um, but I guess this this strategy or shifting the strategy towards Evergreen actually helped us or made it easier for us in that market environment to get going. Okay, that's good to know. If you look at Sequoia, Sequoia didn't need any help, right, to fundraise, but they've consciously and purposely made that 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 shift. Because a, a, a 10 year fund no longer matches how long it takes to effectively and properly grow a business and maximize returns, right? They've noticed that some companies like Airbnb might just stay private, so not go IPO for 15 years. And it would be a shame to sell the business after divest after 10 years if the maximum profit, right, 99% of the, the top percentile is happening in the, last, the, the later two years. Uh, it was not your case. This is more just to make things easier and for ease to enter and leave the fund with, for, for, for investors? Well, I mean, still, when you look at the very nature of climate tech, you don't solve the climate crisis with software only that returns quickly. You also have to invest in hardware. You also have mm. to invest in R&D. And as you said, it might take longer than eight or 10 years or even 12 years. So you want to have that flexibility to stay involved for as long as it makes sense and leave when it makes sense. So I guess that our fund model gives us that flexibility, especially when you're not this typical, you know, um, 
uh, SaaS uh, software driven VC model, but rather want to focus on a bigger challenge that requires a much broader um, range of solutions. So I think that it definitely makes sense to, to be set up as an evergreen in that space as well. Okay. Now paint us a picture of Climate Tech VC in Europe in 10 years. Let's play a game of predictions really quick. What's the ratio of institutional funds, evergreen funds, and solo GPs in Europe? And what was the third one? Also, Sorry, I didn't get it. Uh, solo GPs, right? The, ah, the, yeah. so, the solo entrepreneur turn, you know, start starting their own uh, portfolio. And there's also hedge funds, right, that are starting to dominate the space, not necessarily in Europe yet, but with their gazillion dollar funds, they're starting to venture more and more towards early stage. Yeah. Where are we in 10 years in Europe? Yeah. So I think there's two um, teams um, at the moment. Um, and then I try to picture towards the future. And there's the team that says, well, we need to find um, solutions to solve climate change. We are in for the impact. And then there's the team, oh, climate change is a huge business opportunity. Um, we have to invest in it. And um, there is, uh, and that's good, right? Kind of develops the market. And I think more and more see climate change as a huge business opportunity. We see it this way as well, even though we're also actively measuring the impact. So we're kind of in the middle or kind of in for both. But you, you see much more capital flowing in because it's a huge business opportunity. So even mainstream uh, VCs get into the space. Um, where will it be in 10 years? Um, I think it really depends on the stage of investing. Um, the evergreen model, um, is maybe not fit to, to um, acquire lots of capital in the structure. So if you want to become really, really big, um, you still need to raise from those institutional investors. Maybe they ease up to uh, the idea of not having certainty of how to divest from the investment um, after a certain amount of time. But if, if they don't, then you still need those big funds um, that are capable of raising a lot of capital to fund those B rounds, C rounds, those um, you know highly capital intensive um, uh, funding rounds of startups, um, the early or in the early stages, I can see that model to be much more dominant in the future for sure. All right, now let's take a right turn and talk about launching a climate VC fund, mm -hmm. and let's open up and be vulnerable for a minute, which is highly unusual for fund managers. Tell us about one of the most painful moments you've experienced raising the fund. Any story that comes to mind? <laughs> one of the most painful moments of raising the fund. Um, I mean, so what we realized raising this first fund is everything just takes ages. It takes much longer than you think. And um, indeed. <laughs> and when you start, you have um, you have you always look for a big anchor investor to anchor the round and then you go to other investors say hey look we have this big guy who's um following our mission who's believing in us don't you want to join us as well um so when we started we had um a big anchor who was uh soft committed but not hard committed and uh it was like very very hard to push this guy over the line um and we still kind of went out and talked to other, uh, we already used that soft commitment to raise from other LPs. Um, but then there were uh, a dynamic kind of evolved where other LPs said, well, we wait until this guy hard committed. And, um, and that kind of created an interdependence between the, the potential LPs that we were raising from, uh, which was very, very hard to manage. Um, so at the end, that was also the turning point when we decided to change our structure. Because we wanted to be more in control over uh, how can we, who can we close, who can we bring in. 
not have that interdependence of big investors. So that was a very frustrating period of time uh, when nothing was moving because everybody was waiting for everybody. Give us a sense of how long it took to, to fundraise, right? From the assembling the team, getting the pitch deck ready to closing the fund. Yeah. So there was a period between assembling the team and deciding let's let's do it, let's let's be crazy and just go for it. Um, I think it was like half a year um, that basically meant um, checking the market, see if there is a uh, sufficient deal flow uh, for our thesis. B, um, there's investors that are interested, and obviously B, um, we wanted to test whether we work together as a team well. Um, and that took about half a year. And once we started to go out and, and make this happen. Um, I think it was um, almost a year, a bit less than a year, but almost a year for um, this first close, which was at about 15 million um, to, to get going. So a year and a half, roughly. Total. Um, a year and a half, yeah. And that's pain, sweat and tears and no money in the bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can say it that way. That's there we good. go. <laughs> that's a good reality check for folks. And every fund manager probably has to go through the same phase. Now, let's talk about LPs. I would like to get your, your sense here. When you weren't out selling your fund strategy, how much did they truly care about impact and did they challenge your impact targets? Yeah, I think I did. I mean, we went out um, and exactly for that reason we are in for the impact as a team each and in each individual and our team is doing this because they want to achieve something more than just financial returns and that's exactly the type of crowd we're looking for uh, when we look for investors um, most of our investors are family offices ultra net worth individuals um, angel investors former entrepreneurs so they're um, excited about um, the impact and also want us to report on the impact, wanted to know how we measure it, how we choose investment opportunities. Um, so I think it's a, there's a very general interest in, in the impact component of it. But also, um, we always said from the beginning, climate change mitigation, that's the biggest trend of our generation. This is mm -hmm. uh, where we can make money together with entrepreneurs who try to find solution against climate change. And, uh, and that's something that a lot of people um, also believe. And you see now everybody, or a lot of people believe in that too, as more general VCs move into the space as well. So they're value-oriented uh, LPs, right? Family offices. But I want to double-click again, just to be very specific. Mm -hmm. uh, were they mainly after ensuring financial returns at all costs, or are they also uh, about... Uh, in, increasing uh, tr true impact. So if you yeah. were to paint it in terms of priority, would you say that financial returns were priority one, two, and three, and then impact came next, <laughs> or was it a much more balanced picture? I think for us, um, I guess uh, it's probably a bit more on the impact first side than on the, on the financial return first side. Um, but I think the expectation is there that we make at least um, market uh, returns um, or market comparable returns in VC, um, but a lot more value driven or people have reached out to us because they were looking for something with impact. Has the landscape changed? Do you think they're much more prone to, uh, to seek financial returns or more impact? Has it mm -hmm. gone in either directions? In our bubble, and it's, I'm saying that because I don't know the whole market, obviously, um, I think their appetite for impact has increased. But also okay. the, um, the mindset shifted from um, 
there is a trade-off between impact and financial return towards art oh, actually goes hand in hand because impact is a, a value that is being created. So there must be a willingness to pay for it as well. So it's not philanthropy that we're talking about here. It's impact investing and uh, you, can, you can make money with this. So that has changed as well. So in the beginning, oftentimes it was, uh, especially when you talk to family offices, can we just make a donation? Because then we don't have to go through the due diligence process of making an investment. They're like, no, we're oh. like, we're like, we're like not a grant. We're not a foundation, right? We want to, we're here to make money. Um, so that, that definitely changed. Interesting. And since we're both fund managers, I'd like to riff on one of my favorite topics, contrarian views. VCs mm -hmm. love to bring up a point of view that is entirely orthogonal to the norm. <laughs> um, in the words of Mark Twain, you know, as you know, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. This is incredibly profound, by the way. Do you have any views on why contrarian views is so important in VC? Or yeah. do you consider it overrated or underappreciated? Yeah, I think uh, in VC and especially in climate tech, we see what I observed is it's very collaborative. There's a lot mm -hmm. of deal flow sharing. Um, you always want to pull together a consortium around a certain deal. Um, so as soon as, you know, your fellow is, uh, is interested in the deal, you're like, oh, this is exciting. I kind of want to go into it as well. Right. And then you kind of confirmation bias uh, arises around certain deals. Um, But it's not necessarily the best deal, right? You're just excited about it because others are excited about it. So it's important to challenge that view every now and then and think about whether this is really something worth investing. Is that really the hypothesis um, that, you know, I want to, that I'm working with as a fund? Um, so I think it's important to, you know, be a bit off the mainstream and have your own views and, and stick to them. Because otherwise, you get it's easy to, to just follow the flow and, and, and do what others do. Give us a, an, an area where you have completely changed your mind over the last two years and you try to deviate more and more to the consensus crowd thinking. Um, for example, um, we have looked very intensively into carbon accounting. Uh -huh. um, because it's been, especially last year, it's been very, very hyped. A lot of investment went into that space. And um, we have looked at uh, a lot of deals because a lot of deals were brought to us from other investors. We didn't make an investment because we, we think, actually, it's not that difficult. Well, the defensibility of it is, very, is, is uh, questionable. Um, the value is questionable. And uh, the valuations in the space are um, oftentimes unjustifiable. So we decided not to invest at all in these, uh, in, in these cases and refocused much more on the supply side of, um, of the voluntary carbon market. So that's like one area where you see a lot of VCs going one way and we're like, ah, no, maybe not. Maybe we go somewhere else. And what do you think most people get wrong when it comes to being a fund manager? Is it, for, for example, um, quality versus quantity deal flow. There's a lot of uh, folks that think that we need help to get a quantity of deals when the reality is we are probably overwhelmed by the amount of deal flow, mm -hmm. but also how much time we spend on deals, uh, the politics behind deals, any, anything you think people have completely wrong about being a fund manager? Mm. Well, I, I don't know any how every fund manager operates, but at least uh, a big learning that I made um, is you obviously need quantity of deal flow. You want to know what's going on in the market. 
So it's good to have quantity, but you also have to uh, be able to quickly say no to a deal and don't stick with it for too long. So um, try to build an opinion mm. really quickly and then either double down on it and go full steam or uh, just put it aside. Um, otherwise, you, you wasted time or you spread yourself too thin on too many deals. And uh, then, you, well, you wasted time and, um, and you waste other people's, other, the startup's time as well. Do you have a process to make that happen internally, a gate to eliminate quickly? Mm, yeah, we have um, something called like a temp check. So we send every deal into, into the round of the IC and everybody just like evaluates a deal one to 10, 10 is being like super hot. One is like, uh, it's nothing. Um, two or three bullet points on uh, why that rating um, is the way it is. And that gives you an opinion about it, right? So if, if there's a temp check and three out of four said, well, this is a two and you think it's a six, then maybe you don't waste your energy on it because you have to convince all these other guys that this is a great deal. Um, Interesting. So that helps. So four people that give zero to 10, do you need a threshold score to pass? No, nah, you decide as a deal lead, um, but usually you want it to be at least like five, right? You want uh, people to be, oh, that's interesting. I want to learn more, right? And then um, when you have that energy around a deal, then I, I usually invest my energy in it. And do you think that's a scalable method, meaning as you, as you grow, right, in assets under management, uh, will you involve more and more analysts or uh, young, younger folks um, to, to, do, to handle this first gate? Or it's always going to stay um, yeah, at the partner certainly. level. I mean, we already see now that we are that we're hitting a limit. Last year, we looked at about a thousand deals. That means like a thousand pitch decks you have to look at wow. each, indiv uh, each individual individually. So it's um it's a lot of work, and I think we're hitting. We definitely need to extend our team. I mean, we are now we we raised another um about twenty five million now uh, on top of fifteen that we have. We're still fundraising, so um that gives us more management fee to also add. Um, associates and analysts to the team because um, I think we have to we have to find a way to make this more scalable for sure. Right. Well, for people that are actually looking to work for a climate tech fund, where would you advise them to look? Not necessarily you, but Morgan, but in general. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, it's <laughs> we get a lot of applications, even though we don't have any openings right now. I, it, it seems like there's a lot of interest and in general you can see a lot of talent uh very good talent is going into the space from either um the investor side but also the startup side so it's a it's a very competitive field um i think i would um i would probably go um um yeah be be a good networker uh, have the relevant expertise uh, especially in climate tech, uh, engineers and chemists uh, are uh, in high demand because uh, mm -hmm. they understand uh, the impact me mechanisms very well. They understand the technologies very well. Um, data scientists, obviously, also in high demand. Um, so if you have the right um, capabilities, the right motivation, um, just make yourself visible. Um, go to the events. Um, um, Put yourself out there, offer your help, and um, and 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 make people know that you're interested in the space, that you're willing to, uh, uh, you know, burn some fuel to to uh, add value, and then uh, I'm pretty sure you find 
find a good fit here or there. That, that's right. I think I'm going to compliment this because I think it's very valuable. And I get asked all the time, how would, what would you do if you were at the start? Well, two tips. A, uh, there's a ton of Slack communities or WhatsApp groups or climate tech events. Uh, try to be as visible, as Alex said, as possible. It's very entrepreneurial. At the end of the day, you're also trying to establish your brand, right? So you need to be visible by just being present, but also giving help for free, you know, just contributing. This is a very collaborative community. So any help is appreciated. And over time, people will start remembering your name and uh, seeing you as a true value to be hired full time. And then it takes time. There is uh, uh, X number of funds, I would say in a single digit that are very active today. There might be two uh, digit funds in the next two to three years. So just be patient. It might take one year, two years, just uh, stand ready for when opportunities open. Yeah, amen. And now any advice to share with our fellow entrepreneurs on how to engage with VCs to make them instantly better at fundraising? For example, what not to do with a pitch deck or how not to engage with a VC or, or something that you've seen on the contrary work really, really well. Yeah, I guess um, what, what works for us is uh, if, if you do an active outreach, uh, make sure that um, you understand what the fund is also looking for, what the VC is looking for, because oftentimes you receive stuff. It's not even in your impact focus, like uh, some health tech you know, startups. I mean, you're not addressing the right investor here. You want to address the investor that, you know, where you fit into the investment thesis. So make sure you understand that your stage focus is right, that your, um, that your industry focus is uh, a good fit for the investor and um, make sure that the materials you submit um, include everything that you need, like a good pitch deck. I mean, obviously the, the look and feel uh, ads as well. <laughs> you get a lot of pitch decks that uh, just look like very, very cheap. And then Often, I mean, if you look at a thousand deals a year, then oftentimes the first impression is very valuable. Um, so you make sure that you leave a good first impression. Also, a lot of funds, including us, they use for inbound. They, they have tools like an online, you know, uh, submission form or whatever it is. Um, even if you think it's a good idea to drop personal email, it's Usually not, right? Usually that we, we have those tools because it's uh, the most efficient way to process uh, the deal. We answer to every deal. Um, but if you send us an email, like uh, this disrupts the process in a way. And I think everybody Interesting. thinks this way. Um, but on the other hand, also it's good to be um, active and be introduced to people. Like look for introductions, because as I said before, it's very collaborative. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if you already talked to VC, ask them, hey, um, do you have any other investors I, I should be talking to? Uh, can you give me an introduction? That is usually very effective um, in, in interacting or getting a, getting a good first, first impression. All right. Now it's time for a rapid fire round. Yeah. Are you ready? You know the principle, <laughs> few options, and quick answers. Mm -hmm. So quick. first question. Fundraising versus returning the fund. What is the hardest part of running a VC fund? Um, when you're first time fund, it's fundraising. Um, when you have the capital, it's returning the fund. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Contrarian versus consensus. How do you drive investment decisions internally? Um, I think usually it's more consensus. With internally, it's um, more consensus. Everybody has to be on board. 
So that means you need to educate everyone yeah. on a single topic. For example, nuclear fusion, fusion, yeah. right? Which is a highly yeah. technical comp- uh, concept. So some people might have a completely biased views on what's the timeline. But since you've uh, drilled down on one single case and maybe visited the founders, you will be much more educated. So you need to spread that knowledge and you wait for everyone to be on the same page before making a decision. Exactly, yeah. Okay. That's how we usually work internally, yeah. So, so Alex, a very interesting and personal one. In which company would you personally invest? Not asking LPs, asking you a financial home run or an impact home run? Yeah, I think um, personally, I'm more of an impact first person. That's why I chose the career that, I'm, that I chose, that I'm now doing. Uh, and also, I believe if I, or an impact uh, home run is closely tied to a financial return in the future, at least in the mid and long run. So I'm, I think it will be, it would be a good decision either way. Good. <laughs> a, a similar sort of one versus many. Um, would you, what is realistically more likely to drive maximum CO2 reduction, a Tesla or a thousand startups? Mm, I think a thousand startups because okay. the problem, there's no silver bullet to the problem. So you need um, solutions everywhere. You have to transform the entire economy. So a thousand startups is the way that hopefully all become Tesla scale. Right. Well, Tesla definitely has a head start. We hope to build a Tesla in Europe, um, yet to be seen which company will become so enormous as Tesla. This let's is see, a, yeah. let's uh, you know pr- you know make a check mark to come back in ten years and revisit this this interview. <laughs> well, a, 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 another question is: um, Uber Morgan today has raised fifteen million, and would you rather have Uber Morgan scale to become a ginormous fund, right? 1 billion euro asset under management or have 20 funds to be 50 million euros AUM. So what is more likely to drive maximum CO2 reduction? One yeah. enormous fund or 20 medium funds? So, um, so today we raised actually 40 million. Um, well, I think personally, um, we, we don't want to become too big because we're an early stage fund. You want to place that money in those early rounds. And I think that's where we add most value as a team. So we don't want to become too big. I guess there's a limit somewhere between 150 and 250 million. And uh, hopefully we can all have it within one uh, structure. Um, but what will be the biggest impact? Um, I think you need different structures for different stages. So you need um, a structure for early stage, you need a different vehicle for like uh, follow on growth capital. Um, and uh, obviously the more money flows into the market, the better. And last question, are you favorable or against geoengineering? So the idea um, that we alter our atmosphere by doing stuff that might backfire. So there's two components. So there is carbon dioxide removal and then there's solar geoengineering. Um, so when it comes to carbon dioxide removal, I think um, we should have done, we should have started this 10 years ago. Um, I'm very favorable for that because basically it just means reversing what we've done uh, by putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. I actually so- looked it up just for the record. CCS, so carbon capture and storage, is not considered geoengineering oh, exactly. under the UN convention. 
<laughs> okay, good, good, <laughs> something I learned. Um, but for solar gear, gear engineering, I think um, we should, I'm, I'm not in favor for that. We should work on uh, carbon dioxide um, uh, emission reduction first. Um, because it, I think it would kind of justify to just keep doing what we're doing because we like have this, you know, magical weapon that can, uh, you know, help us manipulate our climate without even knowing what kind of externality that would bring along again. So I'd say that's like the last resort. Let's, let's revisit that option like 20 years if uh, we really messed up, uh, doing the job that we should actually be doing, like fighting climate change at the source. And since we're talking about geoengineering, I wanted to leave the listeners with a cool carve out. Um, there's a book that is quite a fantastic climate fiction. You might have read it, The Ministry for the Future mm-hmm. by yeah. Kim Stanley Robinson. Yeah. So it's not new. It came out in October 2020 after COVID. And it gives a lot of clues of what geoengineering solutions might be the most helpful and, and how they will play out. And this book resonates even more after the past week's incredible heat wave affecting India and Pakistan with temperatures uh, reaching 42 degrees. And in the climate fiction, it's a, it's a similar event called the wet bulb 35 that is the triggering event and that will create a dominoes effect at the beginning um, and, and create the end of the world as we know it. So I will look in, in the show notes. So to conclude the show, Alex, if you had one thing you'd like the entire climate tech community to know or to do, what would it be? Yeah, personally, I'm very interested uh, about how we define and measure the impact of our investments. So there's a huge range of different approaches ranging from intentionality of an investment to like hardcore measurability um, of the impact of each investment. And there's like zero standard. There's um, a lot of different approaches. I mean, it's a new space, um, so I'd be uh, really happy to see some sort of discussion around this topic and transparency about the topic to create some sort of standard. There's already some initiatives out there, but I think we need something like a forum where people can come together and discuss and share, because I think collectively we can have the biggest impact. Uh, a virtual forum or something physical in person? Um, I mean, uh, it seems like COVID is almost over, so it can be physical as well, but I think it's most effic- efficient if we have a maybe something, uh, a hybrid model um, where you can also exchange. And would you like um, every fund to, to provide a, a partner, right? A dedicated impact partner to work on that or should it be much more informal and everyone can participate? Well, whoever is the person uh, in charge um, around that topic, uh, it's not always a partner. Sometimes it's like a researcher, um, but uh, the competences should be put together into a, a form where people can discuss and challenge each other. I think that would be helpful. Here, here. Good to spread. Hopefully people will hear you and start working on it. All right. Thanks so much, Alex, for this great conversation and personal insights. That's Thank exactly you. what this show stands for. <laughs> was a lot great of speaking fun. with you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Climate Insiders, the leading climate tech podcast in Europe. If you've enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe at climateinsiders.co. Climate Insiders is brought to you by Clementum Capital, a late C to Series A climate tech VC. To learn more about Clementum Capital, apply for funding or become an LP, visit clementum.com.